Alper in the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, uh, making his weekly appearance, his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday, on a Tuesday uh, is when we record it, uh, is Fangraphs managing editor Dave Cameron. Uh, Dave Cameron was not around on Monday because he was returning f- uh, to North Carolina from Boston uh, or Cambridge, perhaps, which was once again the site of the annual Sabre Seminar. Uh, the longer title is Sabermetrics, Scouting, and the Science of Baseball, but uh, we can call it the Sabre Seminar, which features a number of panels uh, featuring statisticians, uh, scouts, scientists, uh, and some people whose po- uh, occupations don't start with an S. Dave Cameron was there of Fangraphs. Uh, Bill Petty was there uh, from Fangraphs. David Appman, the founder and CEO of Fangraphs, was there. There were a number of interesting presentations. And what follows, I ask uh, Dave Cameron uh, first to summarize uh, some of them. And also, uh, we use we use some of those uh, presentations, which he does summarize, as uh, starting points for other conversations, deeper inquiry into baseball. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Make sure the levels are all right. Uh, you're back in North Carolina. I am back in North Carolina. You, uh, but you were not in North Carolina because you were in Boston. I was in Boston for five days. Yeah, you were there for the uh, Saber Seminar. It's called the, the Saber Seminar. Yeah, I think the official title is Sabermetric Scouting and the Science of Baseball. But that's a mouthful. Right, but people uh, people will refer to it. Uh, colloquially as the Sabre Seminar. Right. Probably because that's their web address. Oh, yeah, the Sabre Seminar. There you go. Yeah. Sabreseminar.com, yeah. Right. But it also includes, besides Sabre Metrics, but scouting, scouting and science? Were those the other two? Yeah, and there's some history stuff in there, too. Not a lot, but a little bit. Okay. So how is it different than it? Um, well, it's different in that it takes place at a different time of year. And is not affiliated entirely, but how is it different than either a Saber conference or a Sa- or the Saber? Let's see, there's the the Saber um, analytics Saber conference. Analytics conference, yeah. How is it different? Yeah. Uh, right. Well, it takes place in Boston and not Phoenix, mm-hmm. so that's uh, you know point one to the Saber summer. Different um, uh, different time of year too. One should note. Right. Yes. March versus August. Uh, and it was the weather in Boston this weekend was fantastic. It was like eighty and not humid and sunny and really, really nice. So thumbs up for Boston weather. That was a, a nice little break from the, from the North Carolina humidity that I'm used to. Uh, so good job, Boston. Way to have good weather. Um, other ways it's different, I think, is, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more structured. Um, the Saber Analytics Conference, uh, and you can take this as a positive or a negative, uh, you know, builds in a lot of breaks. Uh, you know, that goes a speaker or panel or whatever, and then there's, you know, some downtime to, you know, go mill around and meet people, and then, you know, a little while later, somebody else will start. The Saber Seminar is like, it starts at 9, and it ends at 5, and there's not really any breaks in between. There's a lunch break for an hour, but, uh, you know, the first speaker is from 9 to 9.30, second speaker is 9.31 to 10, you know, and they're right on top of each other. Uh, so they compact a lot of different speakers, a lot of different uh, presenters, into a couple of days, um, and it's kind of like hardcore, uh, you know, put your seatbelt on and go. There are definitely times when 
uh, I decided to decide, you know what, I'm tired of sitting in a chair. I think this presentation is probably fantastic, but I'm going to go step outside and get the fresh air. Now, I know it because, like, at the Sabre conferences, and maybe this is the case at the analytics conference or not, but, like, at the annual Sabre conference, which took place not very long ago now, two weeks uh, in Philadelphia, they will have multiple presentations going on at the same time. So the right. idea is that, you know, you know, maybe, I mean, you know, some people go all day, some people don't, but there are multiple things going on at the same time. And I guess there's a point that, um, generally speaking, there's not two going on at the same time that uh, will have a great deal of overlap um, in terms of content. So you never feel pulled uh, very strongly in both directions. Um, but it sounds like what you're saying is there just, is it one presentation and this is it per, per time slot? Yeah, there's a room, and uh, if you're attending the conference, you're in that room watching the presentation. There's no double tracking. Uh, this is what we're presenting at this time. And I actually prefer that. I don't really love double tracking, to be honest with you, because especially if a favorite analytics conference, there are times when you want to see both things. Uh, I think in, this, in, this, in March there was a case where there was like a presentation from Baseball Info Solutions on some kind of defensive hang time data that I thought would be interesting going up against, uh, like, you know, hit effects data or something else that I found interesting and I could not attend both. Uh, I don't really love the double tracking for that reason. I kind of like it to say, this is the thing we're doing and give everyone who attends a chance to see everything. So what did you see then? That's, I guess that's another thing about, uh, that I'll be curious about. Now, I, well, we should also say this is, a. Uh, uh, organized in part by Dan Brooks, if not exclusively by Dan Brooks of Brooks Baseball? Definitely not exclusively. So the people who put it on, Dan Brooks is certainly uh, a big part of it, but Chuck Corb, who is kind of the biggest founder of the event, uh, he's a, uh, you know, lives in Boston, uh, you know, he's a guy who helps put this on. Uh, and then Rick Rowan is, is uh, helpful as well. Uh, and they have certainly a lot of other assistants, Alan Nathan contributes. Um, so there's a team of people who put it on. Dan Brooks is one of those people, um, but it is definitely not just Dan Brooks' comments. Okay, right. Um, um, so I guess to maybe to talk about a talk about a presentation, you just choose one at random, I guess, something. Do it. At random. So I think maybe, uh, I mean, picking a favorite is tough. Uh, and there are, you know, so many different kinds of presentations. But I think... Uh, you know, one of the ones that sticks out to me was Harry uh, Pavlidis. Uh, I learned how to say his name from him this weekend. So it's not Pavlidis, it's not Pavlidis, it's right. Pavlidis. Yeah. Uh, he did a presentation on change-ups and what makes a good change-up. Uh, I think maybe one of my, if I had a criticism of the event, that they, um, because they have so many speakers, they don't give a lot of time to each individual speaker. So Harry only got 20 minutes. I would have, you know, watched Terry talk about change-ups for a couple hours, probably. Uh, so when he was done, I was sad that he was done. Uh, but that means he did a good job. And uh, so he kind of talked about um, kind of the movement and what makes a good change-up and, you know, whether velocity matters and kind of, um, you know, kind of just went into the making of what is a really effective change-up, uh, which I found, you know, fascinating. I love change-ups. So we've talked about this before. I'm a, I'm a total uh, – I'm, I'm in the pocket of change-ups. That, you know, anyone who throws a good change-up, I'm probably a fan of. So uh, I thought that was a really good talk. Harry's uh, obviously a smart guy with access to really good data. Uh, those are the kinds of things that, for me, really make this conference worth coming to. And I would say that uh, while we um, we share very little in common, um, uh, you and I, uh, we probably do share, both have an affection for the change-up. Um, yeah, right. And I think, you know, maybe uh, this seems to be a trend among favor-type people is, 
uh, affection for the changeup, uh, whether it's an underdog kind of thing, because guys who throw changeups might be undervalued in baseball, and we like undervalued guys, or whether it's because we just, you know, like to see someone succeeding throwing 80 miles an hour, because maybe we think that could be us. <laughs> uh, but it seems like we, uh, the Saber community seems to like the changeup, uh, and, you know, I'm happy to be part of that, because I think the changeup is, a, you know, maybe the most important pitch in baseball. Well, on a fundamental level, it doesn't really seem like, um, it should be a thing that exists. Uh, I mean, the slider, when, when it, you know, certainly for me, when I was like learning how to throw a curveball, say, there's a lot of wrenching and jarring that goes on, um, both in the sort of experimental process and you know figuring out, but just throwing one, right? Um, and for years, there's always been, you know, we've always associated to some degree elbow injuries with with breaking pitches. Um, um, there's some suggestion, although it's, uh, I think it's far from concrete, perhaps I'm wrong on that, that uh, there's a, some correlation between slider usage and uh, and uh, elbow injuries. But the changeup is different in the sense that it seems to come about uh, m- largely by um, by the grip, I guess, and, uh, and the release point. I know that um, I, obviously I'm not a major league pitcher, but when I threw a changeup, it was, you know, you, you generally release it between the, the uh, ring finger and the pinky finger, and that's how you get that depth and fade. And it seems, uh, it seems I guess, uh, improbable, and <clears throat> it is pleasant for that reason that you're able to generate so much movement on that pitch, or that some people are, uh, you know, Felix Hernandez is, uh, you know, when he's throwing his well, um, you know, uh, when... Uh, Matt Harvey throws his well, et cetera. Matt Harvey's not really the best, but he does everything well, so it probably is okay. Uh, but the point is that uh, these these guys are able to generate so much movement on a thing that does not seem to uh, put as much wear uh, or um, you know, put the arm at risk in the same in the same way. Yeah, I mean, so there's two things here. Uh, so one, Glenn Fleisig, who is part of or well, one of the main people at the American Sports Medicine Institute, also presented this weekend, and, you know, he's done a lot of work on pitcher injuries, mechanics, and biomechanics, and uh, he presented a 15-minute uh, thing showing that, uh, you know, this is mostly focused on use, but they've been tracking by questionnaire, so you can maybe question the results if you want, but they've been tracking the uh, responses of uh, pitchers of when they start throwing breaking balls at age 13 or before, you know, when they start kind of mixing in curveballs into their repertoire, and I found no real evidence that the teachers who throw curveballs uh, at an earlier age get hurt at a higher rate. So uh, he thought this has been true and has espoused this before and has suggested that pitchers do not throw curveballs until their uh, body plates begin to, you know, kind of form. Uh, but he presented some research that kind of rebuked himself and said that there's actually not a lot of evidence that uh, um, curveballs are, are a cause of arm injuries in young pitchers. So... That would be point one, and yet, yet another reason to attend the Faber Seminar. Uh, also, uh, Brian Bannister, former major league pitcher, uh, noted Fangraphs nerd, um, now uh, you know, kind of a dude in California raising his kids. Uh, he was at the, the conference for about an hour and talked kind of extensively about how a guy with a, you know, 88-mile-an-hour four-seam fastball doesn't miss that and get guys out and have a five-year major league career. And one of the things he talked about was Ramon Ramirez showing him how to throw a changeup because when Bannister went to the ASMI, one of the things they found is like when he had his biomechanical study that he slowed his arm way down on changeups. Like it was a noticeable difference in arm speed, uh, which hitters can obviously pick up on and helps them detect that a changeup's coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Ramon Ramirez basically showed him a grip and said, uh, you know, put your fingers as far as you can and throw, you know, throw the ball as hard as possible. 
and behind the fans that he'd never heard anyone tell him to throw a changeup by throwing the ball as hard as possible, but it worked, and that's where he learned to change up, and that's kind of what led to one of his best seasons ever, is having this pitch that uh, looked like a fastball, but then, you know, had depth and fade, and uh, I think, you know, it's interesting to hear a major league pitcher talk about not really learning one until he gets to the big league. No coach ever really showed it to him. He just learned it from a, a journeyman middle reliever uh, and turned it turned it into a pretty good pitch. Yeah, that's uh, interesting because uh, was it um, uh, who who uh, it was Eno Eno Saris, of course, of Fangraphs, who recently spoke with Kyle Loesch, a right-hander currently in Milwaukee. Uh, of course, um, had some success with St. Louis, but came up with uh, with uh, with Minnesota. And said that you couldn't, you weren't allowed past double A if you didn't have a changeup. Right. So, that's a, just a yeah. point. There's, there's no development necessary, but the bits, uh, I guess it's notable that in one organization you can make it to the majors without a changeup or without any sort of decent changeup, uh, and another one they won't let you pitch in the major leagues unless you've, uh, you know, developed one. Right. I, I think that was one of the topics of the weekend. Uh, you know, Bannister, Keith Law, several others. You know, there were members of the Red Sox organization kind of talking about, you know, player development process. And, uh, you know, it's certainly different from each organization. And I think from Keith's perspective, when he worked in Toronto, he talked about silos and how the player development staff was not at all open to suggestions from the scouting department and they were not on the same page. This is, you know, eight years ago. Uh, but, you know, you could tell that his experience was that these were not, uh, you know, groups that collaborated. Uh, Bannister kind of painted the same story of, uh, you know, uh, not a lot of help from, from coaching staff and player development kind of did what he did on his own. No one really gave him uh, the tools that he felt he needed to succeed, so he went and got them on his own. Um, but then you hear, like, the Red Sox player development staff and scouting staff talk, and they believe that they're collaborating greatly. So, you know, whether things have changed since Keith Law and Brian Bannister were in the game uh, or whether the Red Sox are, you know, just promoting their own um, organization uh, to a group of fans, you know, it's hard to know from the outside, but I think the the question of scouting versus player development and how those things two, two things work together was certainly a topic of the of the weekend. Well, you said with regard to Pavlidis' um, uh, presentation that he was talking uh, that he discussed uh, what what it is that makes a good changeup. I'm curious, first of all, with uh, I guess his methodology. Did he did he sort of start with the best changeups, whether that's by uh, you know, um, whiff rate, or it's by linear weights uh, uh, relative to average, um, and then sort of unpack those, or you know, kind of going backwards to figure out what it exactly was those those pitches might have in common. Or did he have a, a sort of another method for for coming to that that answer? Yeah. So basically, he showed that a changeup can have kind of two goals, right? You can either use a changeup to get swing with misses, or you can use a changeup to get ground ball. And there are different types of changeups that get strikeouts playing ground balls. It's not the same pitch that gets strikeouts playing ground balls. There are different characteristics depending on what kind of changeup you're throwing. You're either going to get swings and misses or you're going to get balls hit on the ground. And he kind of went through the differences and said, like, yeah, if you're looking for a ground ball, here's a changeup that gets a lot of ground balls. He pointed to, I think, Steven Strasburg at like a 60% ground ball rate on those changeups. Also has a pretty good whip rate on those changeups as well because Steven Strasburg's changeup is amazing. But, uh, you know, he kind of said, here's kind of the, the movement and the velocity and uh, here's the, the attributes of a change-up ground ball, and then here's the movements and the location and the attributes of a strikeout ground ball, uh, a strikeout change-up. And uh, so I think, you know, uh, kind of going through that, showing the differences, uh, I think he showed that if you have a larger separation between your fastball and your change-up, uh, you're more likely to get swings and misses, 
if you have a smaller one, you're more likely to get ground balls, which makes some sense, I think. Um, and, you know, there's obviously a, a somewhat different uh, in movement. Like, movement makes a difference in terms of strikeouts or ground balls. So he just kind of went through and showed you, you know, here are some changes that do this, and here's what the qualities are, and then talked about Chris Archer, who has uh, the, the qualities of a, a changeup that should get swings and misses but hasn't really yet. Um, and, you know, I think he pointed Archer as a guy to keep an eye on because, uh, you know, kind of the underlying core of Chris Archer's changeup makes you think it should be a strikeout pitch. Uh, so maybe if he can develop more swings and misses on his changeup in the future, he could really take a big step forward. That's interesting sort of looking at, and I forget uh, precisely who it was was doing it at Baseball Analysts. Um, a writer who uh, was doing a lot of good work with uh, sort of database queries and graphing uh, that had written for baseball analysts uh, was looking at just the sort of core elements of the early pitch FX numbers and uh, trying to establish from just for velocity movement um, what, how like how much those pit, those pitchers uh, those pitches might be worth. Um, yeah, I believe that was Dave Allen who also ended up writing a pain graph. Yeah, yeah, Dave Allen did it, but but it was one other person. And if I keep talking loud enough, then uh, oh, Jeremy Greenhouse. There we go. Uh, yeah, yeah, Jeremy Greenhouse. Jeremy Greenhouse was also trying to do something like that. And it sounds like what you're saying is uh, Harry has a, um, um, I guess, a, a similar uh, sort of project in which he's working. Uh, well, I don't know that he has a project. I mean, Harry's, uh, you know, got his pitch tags, and uh, you know, he's obviously spending a lot of time thinking and talking about pitching every day. And so I think that this is more of probably a natural uh, thing for him to learn just based on his daily uh, responsibilities as a guy who looks at every pitch ever thrown. Right. Yeah, and he, uh, yeah, he does. And I know that uh, it was also during, well, maybe it was Kyle Loesch or maybe it was Brett Oberholzer. Uh, uh, again, you know, uh, you know Sarah's uh, Fangraphs has been doing um, these sort of great, great pieces on, uh, you know, pitcher process and uh, recently a lot of stuff with grips that has been quite interesting. And uh, Harry, I know, uh, had tweeted out, it was a celebratory uh, celebratory tweet uh, that he had uh, sort of uh, cataloged Brett Oberholzer's, like, two different pitches that he used, for which he uses the same grip. Uh, he had done it correctly. And this was, like, this is a victory. This is a victory in Harry's world. Right, exactly. These are the kinds of things that make up uh, things worth celebrating for a nerd. Uh, I might have a, a question or two about some of the other uh, panels. Um, but I see, looking at the schedule, that uh, you appeared uh, uh, multiple times. It seems like are you on the schedule? You were scheduled to appear multiple times, and I, I believe alongside uh, um, editor, uh, editor in chief, uh, perhaps he's called of uh, Baseball Prospectus, Ben Lindbergh. Correct. I was on a panel with him Sunday morning, and uh, out Spear of WEEI and Brian McPherson of the Providence Journal. Uh, there's some other words in there, probably the Projo, as the people call it. Uh, they were also on a panel, and it was kind of like a stats and media panel, and it was moderated by Boob Shambi, and then kind of halfway through, uh, we threw it back to Shambi, and he ended up being more of a panelist than a moderator. Yeah, it sounds like he was, uh, um, he's on the front lines of that, uh, that question, because it's his responsibility, of course, as, uh, ESPN, uh, personality, uh, broadcaster. Uh, he certainly does, uh, has done Sunday night games on the radio, or Monday night games on the radio, and, uh, has also done some, some television work as well for them, uh, that's incredibly relevant to his job. Right. And, you know, I think a lot of the discussion kind of started off of, uh, you know, how we see our, our data getting used in the media and, uh, you know, kind of uh, the, you know, those questions about the 
the symbiotic relationship of like saying grass in the newspaper or an Alex, Alex Spears case, but you know, I'm still a mainstream audience of WEEI. Uh, and you know, Sean in that same boat where he's calling baseball games, he's doing baseball tonight. Uh, but all of us are kind of interested in telling the truth. And I think that was kind of one of the, the things that came out of that panel was that, uh, you know, I don't think any of us are all that concerned in which numbers are being used. Like, you know, uh, it's not so much important that whether you quote, you know, uh, WRC plus or linear weights or, you know, fit minus. None of those things really matter. It's the point that you're trying to get across, uh, you know, that you're trying to prove using that data that really matters. And so, uh, you know, Sean B. talked about how he was talking to, I believe it was Aaron Boone, when they were calling the Cardinals-Pirates game, and he looked at him and he was just like, okay, Aaron, here's the deal. The Cardinals have a much higher fielding percentage. They make fewer errors than the Pirates do. Uh, you know, by fielding percentage, they have a better defense. The Pirates turn a lot of balls into to, in play and outs. They, they shift a lot. They do all these different things. Uh, they, you know, they're really good at run prevention, and it's not just their pitching. But they make a lot of errors. Their fielding percentage is much, much lower. Uh, you know, Aaron Boone is a noted sabermetrician, but Sean B. basically put him on the spot and said, which defense would you rather take? And Boone picked the Pirates, even though they have more errors and a lower fielding percentage. And he said, there you go. Like, this isn't so complicated. You don't even need to quote UVR. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't need to be a super big stat head. You just need to watch these teams play and know that the Pirates are more athletic and they have multiple center fielders and they're doing all the shifting and they're, they're hard to get hit against. Uh, therefore, even, you know, Aaron Boone, a former player who probably doesn't buy into all this stuff the same way that Sean B. does, I uh, can look at the Pirates' defense and say that one's better. Right. And I guess, right, it's a question of uh, – I would assume that's something that you start to feel over the course of a season, over the course of a career. If you're Aaron Boone, if you're any major leaguer, you can see you can see that maybe guys have sure hands, but uh, they're not doing a lot of moving left and right. Right. And I think, you know, that's something that uh, you can make that point without numbers. Right. That's not something where you need UVR to be like, oh, yeah, this guy has no range and, you know, He's a poor defender even though he doesn't make errors. I think anyone can see that. And that's not like a super hard point to make. And I think, you know, the kind of the goal of Shambi and Spear and McPherson is to, you know, try and make these truths evident to the readers. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't really matter whether they use our numbers or not. I think there were a couple of panels, were there not, with baseball operations people, uh, maybe one sure. with a, uh, at least one manager. I think John Farrell was around, the Boston Red Sox yeah. manager. I, I know... Maybe it's a little different with the managers. Their sort of their job is to speak with the public, and they're pretty good at doing that usually. Um, I'm curious. Uh, I know that in the past, when I've seen panels with baseball ops people, it, they tend to do uh, they tend to say nothing. And I'm curious um, if that was if that was the case at the, the Saber seminar this past weekend. Yeah, I think these guys were maybe a little more open uh, than, than some. Uh, for the people who spoke from baseball operations, Tom Pivot was uh, Saturday morning. He spoke, uh, I think, at every Sabre seminar they've ever had. He's uh, director of statistics, kind of, for the Red Sox. I mean, he's like a uh, data architect and in charge of their systems, and but also statistical analysis and doing reporting. Uh, so Tom Pivot spoke. And, you know, I think he, his talk is more geared not necessarily to exactly what the Red Sox do and giving away state secrets, but working in baseball, his process of being an outsider and getting into an insider. And so people kind of ask questions along that line. So uh, there weren't that many cases where people were saying, you know, hey, tell us how many, uh, you know, uh, runs you, your defensive system thinks Jacoby Ellsbury is worth. There weren't necessarily questions of that proprietary nature. So he was able to be fairly open and honest 
Uh, and then there were three members of the Red Sox uh, scouting and player development system. Um, there was a guy with a, an odd long last name, like Quackenbush or something along those lines. Uh, Quackenbottom. I don't remember right, exactly yeah, who his last name was. Uh, was it Quattlebottom? Yeah. Quaddlebomb. Quaddlebomb. yes. There you go. So that guy, he was there. Jared Porter, who's a, a, a scout for them. Uh, and then Ben Crockett, who's their director of player development. So uh, kind of three people from that vein. And they were asked more specific questions about Andrew Bogarts. And uh, they were fairly open in their evaluations. I mean, they didn't kill Andrew Bogarts for, you know, being a bad baseman or something. But, you know, I think they were fairly honest. Uh, maybe one of the lines of the weekend was, uh, somebody asked along the lines of, like, starter, reliever, how you decide a pitcher's a starter or reliever, and then brought up the name Daniel Bard. <laughs> and uh, I was like, you know, how do you decide whether Daniel Bard is at this point a starter or reliever? And the answer was simply reliever. Like, with no context, it, that was just the answer. Reliever. <laughs> so Dan, they stated that Daniel Bard is a relief pitcher going forward. Not a big surprise. But the, the deadpan nature of the answer was humorous. Um, where is the, wait? Where is Daniel Bard right now? He's rehabbing in Florida. He's, yeah. He has an oblique injury and uh, you know command injuries. Yeah, um, I saw that. Yeah, he used to be so good. He was good for a while, and then you know relievers don't trust them. So I guess not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Keith Wilmer from the Cleveland Indians also spoke, um, and then Daniel Mack was kind of maybe the most interesting uh, baseball ops guy in that he was a presenter at Saber Seminar last year uh, in grad school at Vanderbilt and was kind of presenting something that he was working on in front of his thesis paper, uh, and his presentation was pretty good, and he ended up getting hired by the Kansas City Royals. So last year he was there as a, an attendee, and this year he was there as a member of, of the Royals front office. Um, and, you know, I think uh, I, I talked a bit with Daniel last year and felt like we had a pretty decent uh, rapport, so I felt comfortable asking him what he thought of the Will Myers trade, which gave him a great chance to to uh, respond that it was the policy of the Royal Organization to not comment on the uh, transactions or maneuvers, and he, he dodged the question. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was, it was fun to ask. Right. And you did this uh, publicly or uh, privately? No, publicly. It was the second question I asked. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, one of those things where at the end of the day, he was the last person on Saturday. I think you were a little tired. He was standing up there. There weren't a ton of hands in the air, so I decided to break the ice for him, make the laugh. And uh, he said he appreciated it afterwards. So. And then also somehow you and Lindbergh were involved in an outro. What, what is this? Yeah, so basically uh, last year at this event, Mitchell Lichtman and I uh, were paired against each other uh, in the final discussion of the conference. Mm-hmm. And it turned into a little bit of a, not a heated argument, but a passion. Mitchell, Mitchell's a passionate dude. <laughs> and, I, you know, I don't really, I'm not a big backer downer. So he made some comments that I disagreed with, and I told him that I disagreed with him, and we had, like, a spirited conversation, uh, which I think, you know, uh, I was fine with. I wasn't offended. Uh, you know, I thought it was kind of fun and entertaining. And then, like, a few weeks later, he quit the Internet. So uh, maybe he didn't enjoy it quite as much as I did, and he didn't come back this year. So uh, Ben Lindbergh replaced MGL, and my goal was to make him also quit the Internet. Uh-huh. I want to, like, annually, just, like, whoever my opponent in this thing is, I want them to to just disconnect their modem and, and move to the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't think I succeeded in that. I, I think they've been sticking around. But we basically just took, took questions and made jokes, and uh, I think I made fun of Jesus Montero, and, uh, you know, we just kind of uh, held court for yeah. about a half an hour until Dan Brooks shut off the lights and told us we were 
we were going to. You, uh, you and Ben are different, probably for a number of reasons. One of which is the amount of words you use per minute. Uh, yes, that is true. I talk much faster than Ben does. He blinks far more often than I do, yeah. and I am like seven feet taller than he is. Yeah. Well, I don't know about seven feet. Yeah, well, you're you're decent size. Are you six feet? About. Uh, I'm about six two, and he's six. about four one. He's not. He's uh, he's taller than four one. But uh, well, that sounds like a successful event, and of course, uh, we haven't even mentioned I, the only now it should be the only thing, the only part of the weekend uh, um, at which I was present was the Fangraphs gathering at uh, Meat right. Hall in, in Cambridge Kendall Square, um, which was that mostly... is why the event was successful. Mm-hmm. So you were not there, but it was uh, that was fun as well, and I actually think that there's some value to those um, sorts of meetings as well. Uh, obviously. A, a little less formal. Not not to say that it, it doesn't sound like Saber Summer is very formal, but uh, there's you know uh, a lot of dialogue, and uh, some of right. it you know is meant to uh, is you know meant to be amusing. Um, you know, a lot of guys talking to each other about baseball. That's fun, uh, but uh, it is nice to to just have those ideas. It, it reminds me uh, um, in its way of uh, the meetings we have when we're in Arizona together, and it doesn't necessarily. Ha- it's not necessarily the fact that uh, it's all Fangraphs writers together, uh, but when you have a number of people all with one sort of interest in common, in this case, uh, you know, being nerdy about baseball, uh, you're going to have an exchange of ideas whether you whether you mean to have or not. Right. Yeah. No. I think uh, Friday night was fun. It's always good to meet people from from uh, readership or other sites or other writers. Uh, and, you know, I think there's definitely value to just, like, the social aspect of baseball. I know one of the things that uh, my wife and I have been talking about for a while is this trip was uh, something I was really looking forward to because, especially ever since we got our puppy, I have basically not had conversations with human beings. <laughs> it's been me and the dog at home, you know, basically for a month straight, uh, where I just, like, have missed interacting with people. And I don't have a lot of friends in my real life that are big baseball fans, but really I would say I have none. Um, and so, you know, there can be times where, you know, the life of an Internet baseball writer or Internet baseball reader can get not necessarily lonely, but, uh, you know, secluded a little bit. And so I think, you know, just to gather in one place and be able to converse with like-minded folks or, you know, even people who disagree with you, uh, about things, but, you know, are interested, uh, like interested folks, right. uh, you know, it's, it's good. And I think it kind of helps bring us out of our shell. And, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to just kind of, um, you know, create your own little bubble and live in it. But when you actually are interacting with other people and conversing with folks and they have different ideas, I think it, commu- it promotes community in a way that, you know, maybe commenting on someone's post is not. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good way not to not to promote community. Usually, usually given the tone. Uh, yeah. Although, uh, so, you know, well, Knockrafts at least a very, very high level of discourse. I don't know. Yes, but a very low level of uh, you know maybe <laughs> right. maybe the quality is coming from the bottom up rather than the top down. <laughs> yeah, that might be it. That might be it. The uh, well, all right. Um, you've almost fulfilled your obligation. I, I guess it should be noted that uh, you posted today on the uh, you sort of gave a, a summary of the various award races at this point uh, in the year. Uh, you know, it seems as like a, uh, part of your thrust with this was not necessarily who you, for you know, the players for whom you would vote at the moment, uh, although you did include that, but this is sort of trying to predict what the winners might be. Yeah, it was more of like a breakdown of where we stand. I mean, I think with five weeks to go, it's just, you know, more important to kind of like set the tone and say, you know, here's what's 
the, looks like the race is going to look like over. These are the, you know, this is probably how it's going to break down. This is what to watch for. It wasn't necessarily so much an argument in favor of any one way of thinking. It much was like handicapping uh, what to expect over the, the final stretch and saying, you know, like Miguel Cabrera is probably going to win and Clayton Kershaw is probably going to win everything. Yeah, I didn't realize Clayton Kershaw had gotten that good. You call him the best pitcher in the majors. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's fair at this point. Like, going into the season, I think you could have said there was kind of like a big three with Justin Verlander and Felix Hernandez kind of also being in that mix. Uh, but Kershaw is having another amazing year. Verlander might have taken a little bit of a step back. Uh, Felix is not taking a step back, but I think Kershaw has separated himself a little bit from everyone else. Right. Um, okay. Well, listen, um, you've really done it. That was, uh, we did, we, we had a real episode. It's like a, all around a central theme. Um, a, uh, I really, I think, um, a, a moment, a monument, and a moment, uh, in, um, in broadcast journalism. Yeah, I think this was a good podcast. Well done, person. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you, thank you, Dave Cameron. Thank you. Yes, that is uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. And Carson Sassouli, this has been Fangraphs Audio.